turn back to Genesis chapter 2, we see how God has provided for mankind. People have uh, asked the question, why are there two uh, accounts of creation in the first two chapters of Genesis? Some people see that as a mistake, but it is, in fact, purposeful, and it was written that way to further explain God's work of creation, specifically as it deals with the most important being that God created, which was uh, humankind. And so that account starts in chapter 2 and verse 4. And it gives uh, a record of some of the ways in which God provided for mankind. Some people say there's three things. Some people say there's five. I think I can see at least four in this chapter of ways in which God provided for humanity. And in the setting we see a brief description of what the earth was like in those first days of creation. The statement in verse 5, when it says there's no shrub of the field, no uh, plant of the field, and the statement about there not being rain, uh, is fascinating at a variety of levels. Uh, for one, it says that the reason that these things did not exist was because God had not yet sent rain and because there was no man to cultivate it. So why were there no fields of grain, no uh, vines of grapes or things like that? The reason was because there were not people to cultivate it and because those crops require sowing, they require rain, they require things that God had not yet provided for mankind at that time. And so we, we look at that and we say, well, what's the significance? Why does the author of Genesis bring those things up? And I think part of the reason that those things are mentioned is to indicate mankind's dependence on God. Sometimes we think that we are independent of God, but the last song that we sang just a moment ago contrasts God as an eternal being, the source of all things, who existed before any of it was made, with us as human beings who are like a dream that fades the moment that you wake, who are people whose lives are comparatively short in contrast with eternity. And so I think part of what's being emphasized here in this second chapter of Genesis is man's dependence on God and God's gracious provision. God did provide, however, water in the form of a mist, it says, verse 6, to water the surface of the ground, and as we see as well a little bit later that there is uh, food in the form of the fruit trees and plants that God had provided, but these were plants that were growing on their own apart from the cultivation of man. God had put them there. Not only did God provide food for mankind and a home, but verse 7, God gave man life. Then the Lord God formed man of dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. This verse is important because it reminds us where we came from. Uh, the old statement that used to be made at funerals was dust to dust. Why? Because God formed human beings from the dust of the ground, and that's what we return to in death. 
Again, a contrast between the short and the dependent life of human beings in contrast with God, who is eternal, and God, who is the source of life. This statement in verse 7 stands in contrast to those who would say that mankind received life through long ages as a process of gradual evolution. God gave man life. God having given man life means that life has value, that we owe it to God, that we are dependent on God for the sustaining of that life. It says in the New Testament that Jesus Christ is the one in whom all things hold together. If we look very closely at our bodies, at what is around us that seems so solid, it is largely empty space. What holds it together? We don't know, but the Bible has the answer that it is God who upholds his creation moment by moment. The reason that you are sitting here right now, alive, breathing, hearing, seeing, experiencing life, is because of God's hand upholding you. And that's important for us to remember in contrast to a a perspective that is prevalent in our world today, that we exist independently of God or any other being, that we determine our own destiny, and that we control every aspect of who we are. The reality is we do not. We are dependent. We are created. We are frail. We need God and his provision. I said a moment ago that God provided food, but that was said in the context of the home in which God provided for Uh, The first people, verse 8, The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That last will become important next week when we look at chapter 3 and mankind's sin against God. But it's important to note that God not only created what was necessary for life, but he also created beauty. Look at verse 9. God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight. And that will become important next week when that is the avenue by which uh, Satan, the serpent, tempts Adam and Eve. It looks good. Enjoy it. But God had already created all of this amazing beauty around them for them to enjoy, both to see and to eat and to experience and set a simple boundary, and yet they did not obey, as we'll see next week. But God provided a home for Adam. God provided food, God provided beauty, God provided a wonderful place for him to live. God also provided what was necessary to sustain that home. We see that in verses 10 through 14. There is dispute among people about whether these rivers correspond to the present-day rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, which are still uh, described and and recognized today. The other two uh, are no longer recognized as rivers today, and people are not certain precisely where they were. The simple explanation of this would be, I think, the author of Genesis is showing some correspondence between the world that was and the world that is, which was drastically reshaped and changed in the flood, which we'll read about a bit later in the book of Genesis. Not only did God provide for mankind life and a home in which to enjoy that life, but God also provided 
a purpose for man. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And God gave man one rule. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. And so man had purpose. Sometimes we look at work as a necessary evil. But work existed before evil came into the world, and so work is a good thing. The reason that we dislike work and sometimes try to avoid it is because work has become tedious. As we'll see next week in chapter 3, thorns, thistles, sweat of your brow, all of those sorts of things are a consequence of the coming of sin into the world and God's judgment on the world as a result of it. But in the beginning, Adam went and he cultivated the home that God had placed him in, and it was enjoyable and it was good. Think about that. You go out and cut the grass and work in your garden and not have to worry about flies and sweat and being sore afterwards if you dig too much, all those sorts of things. That was Adam's experience. None of those things that make work difficult or unpleasant today. He just was able to work for God's glory to fulfill the purpose that God had assigned to him within the boundaries that God had assigned to him. You have the whole garden except this one tree. Leave that alone. And so Adam had a choice whether he was going to listen to God's command or not. Then we come to verse 18, and we see a contrast here between all that we have seen before. The Lord God said, it is not good. Genesis 1, it was good, 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 it was very good. Genesis 2 and verse 18, it is not good. This was not something that took God by surprise. This is not something that was an accident. God knew that it was not good for Adam to be alone, but God uh, resolved that problem by creating, as it says at the end of the verse, a helper suitable for him. Uh, verses 19 and 20 seem like they don't fit. Why, do they, why are they placed after verse 18? Essentially, I think what God's doing is he is describing the entirety of creation and saying in all of creation, there is not found that helper. So he introduces the idea, and then he shows that the idea is true. Verse 19, out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call him, and whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. Again, God is highlighting for Adam that he is incomplete, and that he is dependent on God to fulfill that state of being incomplete, and that there is no being in all of creation that is a substitute for the helper that God will provide for him. Sometimes it's said that a dog is man's best friend. I used to have a discussion with my mom about why that is. She said it was because the dog will see whatever you're doing and will do it with you and won't tell you you shouldn't be doing that. Um, that's probably... Uh, there's probably good reasons why they say a dog is man's best friend and not a cat is man's best friend, because cats kind of do their own thing, and uh, they're not always companions. But um, even a dog is not a sufficient substitute for human companionship. No matter how close or how responsive or how emotionally connected someone might feel to any creature 
it is not the same as the relationship that one can have with a fellow human being, specifically the relationship between a husband and a wife. And so God was showing to Adam that even though you have this privilege and this responsibility of cultivating the garden, of ruling over all of creation, of assigning names to all of these things, classifying them, organizing them, enjoying their presence, they are not enough. You need me, and you need the helper that I am going to make for you. So he says in verse 21, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We look at these verses and we say, What is the significance of what God did? There's people who wax poetic and say God could have taken a foot or a hand, but God took a rib from over his heart. And that sounds really great and, and, and emotionally satisfying. But what is significant about what God did is the statement that Adam made, verse 23, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. God made Adam of the dust of the ground. God made a woman from man. In turn, as we see in 1 Timothy, it talks some about this. The woman was created from the man. But in the way that God has established it, men are dependent upon uh, being born from their mothers for their own existence today. And so there's this interdependence and perfect harmony that God established. And when it says at the end of verse 24 that a man and a wife shall become one flesh, God pictured that with what he did with Adam and Eve. And sometimes people look at that as a description of physical intimacy, and that's part of it. But there's a bigger thing going on. Adam and Eve were literally one flesh. God made them of the same substance. They were connected in a unique way. And marriage is a picture of that close and unique connection that God established as a good thing, as a resolution of verse 18. It is not good for the man to be alone. And so this passage says profound things about marriage. But before we get there, what else does it say uh, instructing us about God's provision? This chapter paints for us a picture of God as a good provider. We'll see later in the book of Genesis that God is described with the name Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. But even in this second chapter of Genesis, we see God's good provision. God didn't just say, all right, I'm going to make some people and I'm going to send them out in the wilderness and I hope they make it. That's the picture that people in the name of science speculating on theories of origins paint for us. Here's these people descended from a common ancestor with the apes who are out in the harsh and unforgiving world fending for themselves and some of them made it, and that's why we're here today. That contrasts with the picture of Genesis 2. Genesis 2 says a kind and gracious and all-wise God designed humanity, provided a beautiful home, established purpose and meaning to life, gave companionship, 
and met all of man's basic needs for the purpose that man would live and glorify God. And so when we see a chapter like this, we have to ask ourselves, is that the perspective I have on human life? Sometimes we adopt the perspective of people around us and we see life as a necessary evil. Because of the realities of aging, because of the challenges of raising children, because of a variety of reasons, we may look at life as this struggle in difficulty and toil and general unpleasantness. And while there may be elements of that that characterize our life after Genesis 3, in the context of Romans 8, where it says creation groans for God to restore it, we ought not to lose the hope and the picture and the perspective that we see in Genesis 2, that God made everything very good and God provided for all of man's needs and that things like food and family and work and home are good blessings from God. I mean, that's what we saw in the book of Ecclesiastes when we were studying through it, right? These things are not a substitute for God, but they are gifts from the hand of God to be enjoyed. And so we should not lose that perspective. We should not think that having a home is a bad thing. For us, these are structures that require regular maintenance and property taxes. Just got that bill in the mail and was reminded of that aspect of things. And paying utilities and all those sorts of things. Our homes today require a lot of work, but they are gifts from God that we have a place to live, a place of shelter. Whether it's big, whether it's small, whatever it might be, God has provided that for us, just like he provided it for Adam and for Eve. God has given us life. It's easy for us to think that our lives are ours. I can do what I want. I can use it up however I want. Our lives are a fixed quantity. By that I mean they have a beginning and an end. And if we recognize that it comes from God, hopefully that means that we make better use of the time that God gives us in our lives. There have been uh, various reminders for our families about the uns our family about the uncertainties of life in the last year, and I'm sure you've experienced those things at different points in your life as well. We are not guaranteed tomorrow, which is why it says later in the Bible that we are to call upon the name of the Lord now because we don't know if we have tomorrow or the day after or the week after or the year after. Sometimes people think, well, my life is just going to sort of, we don't actually say this, but it's just going to sort of last forever or at least I've got a few good decades so I can do whatever I want. You don't know that. So where do you stand before God right in this moment? Are you trusting in God or are you trusting in yourself? We talked about uh, just a few moments ago in the baptism, 
that that's a picture of the new life that we have in Christ, that you were united with Christ in his resurrection. But we have to be first united with Christ in his death. We have to die to sin. I'm living for myself, loving what pleases me, doing whatever I want in opposition to God. If I'm going to have the life that Christ offers, I have to die to all of these things. God is the giver both of physical life and of eternal life, and God says, this is the way that you receive it. He breathed into man the breath of physical life, but made him also a soul, and he offers eternal life if we turn from ourselves and trusting in what pleases us and say, I will instead trust in God and his way of salvation, which is found only in Jesus, because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one reaches God except through me. And so if we have received physical life and we are aware of that life, that ought to remind us as well of the realities of life and death and the question of where we stand before God. Not primarily so we can say, where am I going? Because eternal life is not primarily about a place. Think about going to visit family. If you are going to visit your grandparents as a kid, assuming you had a good relationship with them, and hopefully you did, if you went to visit them and you just went to their house and they weren't there, what good is that? It's not the same thing. In the same way, eternal life is not about getting to heaven. It's about knowing God. That's what John 17, 3 says. Eternal life is this, that you may know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And so even in the beginning, in the book of Genesis, in chapter 2, we see an anticipation of the fuller explanation of life through Christ, eternal, in God, that we see revealed in the rest of Scripture. Home is good. Life is good. Work is good. Do you go to your job grudgingly? wishing you didn't have to do that. I know some of you are retired. You still have work to do, whether it's of your own or things that your wife needs help with or uh, stuff that just comes up that you have to work on. Do you see work as a good thing? There's a lot of people that see work as something that we race through as quickly as possible because we don't like it and it's just something we have to do. Or do you see it as something from the hand of God that you can honor him in the way that you do it? In Colossians, it says that those who work for masters were to serve them as though it was God watching and not somebody else. Doing their work well because it honored God. Is that the attitude that we have toward work? If we recognize that it was something that came before sin entered into the world, then we ought to recognize that work is a good thing. Do we recognize that to be alone is a bad thing? I'm not saying by choice. Sometimes there are uh, difficulties and realities of life in a broken world. We lose a spouse through death. We lose a child through death. We're separated from family sometimes through no fault of our own. And we are alone. But God describes here and says that that loneliness is not good. And there's a sense in which that loneliness can be addressed in connection with God but there's also a sense in which, in the context of the New Testament, God designed the church to be a place where that need, desire, lack of companionship can be met. 
the general principle that's laid out in this passage is that the normal progression of life is for men and women to be married, one man, one woman, to be married for the duration of their lives, to raise a family, they in turn to do the same. I realize that doesn't happen for everyone. Things interrupt that. But that is the picture and the ideal that's laid out in this book. And so if you are presently married, do you see that as a gift from God? If it's for companionship, that doesn't mean you get married so two people can save on taxes and live under one roof and do their own thing. If it's for companionship, if it's this picture of the two becoming one, does that describe your marriage? In the book of Ephesians, it says that Marriage is a picture of the oneness between Christ and his church. We said at the beginning in the description of baptism that we're united with Christ in his church. Marriage is a picture of that. Husband and wife, different uh, personalities and backgrounds and experiences and all those things connected in one relationship. All of us in this room are in different places in life different experiences of life, different backgrounds in various ways, but if we are connected with this church body, we are one in Christ. And so this reality that's described in Genesis 2 points to that reality and to the future reality of all of God's people gathered with their creator in perfect relationship forever. Do we uphold this picture of marriage in the face of the brokenness of this world. There are difficult and, and harsh realities in our world today. There are people in marriages who are not living up to this ideal. The husband doesn't love the wife. The wife doesn't love the husband. There's lacking in faithfulness. There's even so much as a, a break in the marriage through divorce. All of these sorts of things are realities in our world today, but do we see this as a good example and an ideal to strive for? And we can picture these things even in the context of the sinfulness and the brokenness of our world. It's not, you don't experience this ideal so you've missed the boat. Maybe you've never been married. Maybe you've been married and lost a spouse for a variety of reasons you can still value the picture that is put before us in Genesis chapter 2 and uphold it as a good thing, even if it's not your present experience. I'd be remiss in not saying this. This stands in contrast to the attitude in our world today that says you can love whoever you want, do whatever you want, but that's a selfish approach. Because when people say things like, Love is love. They mean I do what makes me happy, and if it stops making me happy, I'll stop doing it. It's wrong because it's selfish. It's wrong because it rejects God's boundaries of what's good and what's not good and arrives at just do whatever you feel like. And people say, well, that won't go to extremes, but it often does. If we throw out God's perspective and God's boundaries for what's right and wrong, 
when it comes to what marriage and family looks like, what boundaries are we going to set? There's really no reason to set any boundaries. And so when we reject God's good design here, we reject a whole lot more than we realize. So do you uphold and value God's picture of the family? Not just because it seems like the best way to do things, not because statistics say that it's better to have one man and one woman married in a stable home versus some other sort of arrangement, not for those reasons, but because of the picture that it shows of the relationship between the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the oneness between two people, they connected to each other, the two of them connected to God, and then as we come later in the scriptures, all of us together in the church connected with Jesus Christ, uphold this perspective, this truth about the way things should be for better reasons than just because it makes sense on paper, but because it's what God said and because it gives a picture of God to the world around us. Verse 24, leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. There is one family that becomes people from two different families become a new family, and they picture this relationship. And just a brief comment about verse 25. It's one of those verses that sometimes kids have a humorous reaction to because it seems odd to them. But what's the point of it that Adam and Eve were both naked and were not ashamed? Because there was no sin. Sin is what produces pride and shame and guilt and all of those sorts of things that make complete openness with one another difficult. Before sin, there was nothing to hide from each other, and there was nothing to hide from God. And as we'll see in the next chapter, once there is sin, they're ashamed of being next to each other, and they're ashamed of being in God's sight. But before that happened, there was no shame. And so may we long for a day when sin is done away with and the shame and the guilt and the suffering of sin is also gone from us. Remember the picture of Genesis 2. It's easy to get stuck on details like where are the four rivers that were named or what's the significance of the name of the precious gem that's mentioned in verse 12 or uh, why did Adam give this name to that animal and that name to the other animal? But those are details that support the whole. They're not the point of the whole. What's the point of this passage? God, in a good way, in a gracious way, provided for humanity. Life, home, work, family, all these things to be richly enjoyed. And there is hope that as we know God and as we follow God, we can enjoy those things as well. Not as substitutes for God, not in a way that we forget God, but as seeing them as good gifts from God's hand, as seeing the things that they picture 
and anticipate and the end result of all things where some of these things will be put back right the way that they ought to be, we can look forward to that even as we live in this present world. And so I hope that's the perspective you walk away from this passage with. If you are not presently trusting in Christ today, that's not the perspective you'll have on this passage. You'll look at it as a myth, as something that is kind of silly, as something that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But if you see this as God's word and as true, then you will see in it both the ideals for life and how far in our sinfulness sometimes we've fallen from those things. And both those things should drive us to God. God, we long for these things to be as they were. God, we long for these things that are not as they ought to be to be set right. And the only way that happens is through a right relationship with Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to look at your truth this morning. Many different things we see in this passage, but we see, hopefully, most of all, your good provision for us. Lord, help us to see you as a good and gracious God. Help us to give that picture to those around us in the way that we live, in the way that we dwell in our homes, in the way that we work, in the way that we live in our families, pointing them to you, to the hope that's in Christ, to the promise of restoration of creation, and to uh, the day when Christ returns and sets all things right. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.